Well, let's turn to the book of Jeremiah, chapter 1, and uh, we're going to continue our study as we began last week, a new uh, book study on the prophecies of Jeremiah. Uh, We covered about six verses last week. I want to kind of go back and begin once again in verse 4, pick up there, and then go down to verse 10 tonight. So our Our study will uh, only go as far as verse 10, and then next week we'll complete the the chapter. And then from then on, hopefully we'll get a little bit of a flow with chapter by chapter, week by week. But uh, I think it's very important that we establish a, a good foundation in our study, as we just began last week, a good foundation in the book of Jeremiah. So let's read uh, verses 4 through 8, and then let's go to the Lord in prayer. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I sanctified you, or set you apart. I ordained you a prophet to the nations. And then said I, Ah, Lord God, behold, I cannot speak, for I am a youth. But the Lord said to me, Do not say, I am a youth, for you shall go to all whom I send you, and whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of their faces, for I am with you to deliver you, says the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father, as we come now to this particular section of the book of Jeremiah, we pray for the outpouring of your Holy Spirit. We pray, Father, that you will anoint us and bless us and strengthen us with your wisdom and understanding so that this passage tonight will will be not only understood in our minds but received and applied from our hearts. I thank you, Lord, that everything in your word from Genesis to Revelation is, is fresh and alive for us each and every day. And because this is a living testament, as all of your word is, we pray that it will become alive in us as we live in days not unlike Jeremiah's. And we pray, Father, that we will live above the circumstances of this world. For we indeed have overcome the world, not by our might or power, but through Jesus Christ and by the power of your Holy Spirit. Help us, Lord, in this study tonight, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. What would be your reaction if God were to tell you that your task to which you've been called was to oversee the death of a nation? What would your reaction be? I don't think you would even consider it a difficult task, though it certainly would be. But more than likely, you would probably consider it a meaningless assignment. You'd probably say, as I would, Hey Lord, what about a good job for a change? But to prophesy to a nation that was dying, if not already dead, seems pointless. Meaningless. If it's going to die, let it die. I don't know that we'd be that heartless. But it is something to consider in the calling of Jeremiah by God. This is what the prophet Jeremiah faced as he is being called by the Lord God. And while that says a lot about the character of Jeremiah to be faithful to the calling uh, given to him by the Lord, it says a whole lot more about a God who will, to the very uttermost, give every opportunity for his sinful people to turn and to repent of their rebellious and their wicked actions committed against their one true and holy God. 
It says a lot more about the God who says, go preach to them to return. Though God already knows the outcome. You see, in Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, mourning the judgment of the nation, we see also the very heart of God for His disobedient and defiant people. The same heart of God. And, and, and please understand this as well, that every prophet that we read in the Old Testament, every prophet whether he was a weeping prophet or a praying prophet or a preaching prophet, and we, as we spoke of Habakkuk and, and Zephaniah, every prophet mourned for their nation and in so doing reflected the very heart of God for His people. How significant that the Lord would continue to or would continue His witness to them until they were eventually carried away captive to Babylon. It is from this thought that the success of Jeremiah's ministry would need to be redefined from its conventional understanding. Because we know that his ministry wasn't to be successful as far as bringing the nation of Judah back to a spiritual relationship with God. We would say that if he had been able to preach the gospel or preach the, the message that God had given him to the nation of Judah and they would repent, that that would be successful. That's the way we think. And we've carried that particular kind of thought into this day and time in which we live, that the only success that there should be in the gospel is that we become prosperous or that we, or that we get everything we, that we want or that we uh, have or want to have even more. But we have to start thinking in terms of God's understanding of, of success. What we need to know about being successful or abundant or prosperous from the biblical perspective is simply this. Listen carefully. The measure of biblical success is based on and motivated by obedience to God's Word and the presence of God Himself. That is the measure of success in the scriptures, and that is to be the measure of success for every believer in Jesus Christ. Let me state it again. The measure of biblical success is based on and motivated by obedience to God's Word and the presence of God Himself. Think for a moment about the classic success statement found in the book of Joshua. And I want to come here because I want us to look at it properly and not as some others have, saw, have seen it and have taught it. Joshua chapter 1, verses 7 through 9. It says, Only be strong and very courageous, that you may observe to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Stop, and what is the one word you see there? Obedience. Do you read it there? You don't see the word obedience, but you understand when he says, Observe to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. And then he says, Do not turn from it, from the word, from the word that we're to be obedient to. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may prosper wherever you go. We're prosperous because we obey God. Listen to the next phrase. Verse 8, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate in it day and night, that you may observe to do. What is that? Obedience. That you may observe to do according to all that is written in it. All that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous. And then you will have good success. Now notice verse 9. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and of good courage. Do not be afraid nor be dismayed. And notice this last phrase. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. A measure of biblical success is based on and motivated by obedience to God's Word and the presence of God Himself. The Lord is with you wherever you go. Is there any room then for us to be successful? Is, without the Word, without obedience, without God, without His presence? With this in mind, 
Let us return to the previous discourse between Jeremiah and the Lord. The calling of Jeremiah to this most serious and heart-rending mission was obviously not a casual choice, but a master plan. God wasn't, you know, flipping through a Rolodex to see who He might choose. Well, unless Rolodexes are out of touch with, you know, computers and all kinds of other ways of finding people. God already had a master plan. Jeremiah was in that master plan before Jeremiah was even formed in his mother's womb. And so his plan was one that expresses the care and skill, not unlike a potter with his most prized vessel. Look at verse, verses 4 and 5. Then the word of the Lord came to me. Jeremiah speaking. The word of the Lord came to me saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I sanctified you. I set you apart. I ordained you a prophet to the nations. Jeremiah was handmade for his task. Jeremiah was handmade for his task. Even, and, and listen, even his sensitive and vulnerable nature would coincide with God's perfection. Makes us wonder sometimes, you know, and, and, and this is not reason for me to tell you these things so that you can say, well, you know, when I get angry, well, it's just the way God made me. No, because the Bible says, don't be angry. But we are who we are and we're all different and we all respond differently to things but we shouldn't respond differently to the way God calls out to us yet we do at times respond differently uh, as, as, to, as to the very nature of what He calls us to do and we, you know, some of us might fear a little bit more than others others might be so gung-ho let's go get them all, Lord, you know, whatever but nonetheless, if He calls you God's perfection is wrapped up around you no matter how you are. You you all understand what I'm saying? In other words, as I said last week, Jeremiah was not an accident because God makes no mistakes. It was no accident that Jeremiah was picked, chosen by God, called by God. And while much of what is said to the prophet applies directly to the prophet himself about his calling specifically, the fact that God knew us before He formed us should speak to every believer in terms that are comparable to those we've seen with Jeremiah. Take for example, if you turn to Romans chapter 8, verses 28 through 30, what it says here is really for all of us. Because Paul says to the church, and we know that all things work together for good to those who love God. To those who are the called according to His purpose. Was Jeremiah specifically not called by God? Yes, he was. Was he not called by God for a specific purpose? A very specific purpose. But now, generally speaking, God is speaking to us. And He says, we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to His purpose. For whom He foreknew, did God foreknew, did God foreknow you? The very same thing that He said to Jeremiah, He can say to us, before I formed you, I knew you. Wow. For whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. Are we not being conformed day by day into the very image of Christ? I hope that each and every one of us are. And then He goes on in verse 30, Moreover, whom He predestined, these He also called. Whom He called, these He also justified. Whom He justified, these He also Glorified. God has His plan worked out. But does that mean we just kind of sit like a dummy on a chair? I'm sorry, not talking about you guys. 
It seemed like, you know, a way for him to kind of manipulate us. No, he gave us a mind, he gave us a heart, he gave us free agency, a free will to choose to love him, to serve him, and to respond to his word. Gave us everything we needed to respond to him. So as with God to Jeremiah, these words here and the ones that we've read in Jeremiah chapter 1 are meant to reassure and to refamiliarize us with God's sovereign love. And our only fit response is odd gratitude and acceptance. Odd gratitude. Oh God, how thankful we are for what you've done. How thankful we are for what you're doing. How grateful we are, Lord, that you saved us from an eternity of death. And you saved us into an eternity of life everlasting in Jesus Christ. Jeremiah's response, on the other hand, (laughs) was one of hesitance. It was one of reluctance. It was one of timidity, of fear. Verse 6, then said I, Ah, Lord God, behold... I cannot speak, for I am a youth. I know we touched uh, touched a little bit of this last time, but in ordaining him as a prophet, the Lord commands Jeremiah to speak on his behalf to the people. But the young prophet is aware of his inabilities. May may I ask you, aren't, aren't you too? Aren't you aware of your inability sometimes before God when you realize God is calling you to some special mission or some special task or some special thing? You might be called upon to go and see somebody in the hospital to bring the message of the gospel to them and you wonder, why me? My only question to ask you is, why not you? If you've heard the gospel, if you've read the gospel, if you read the word of God daily, if you pray, if you seek the face of the Lord, why not you? But we're all this way. He's aware of his inabilities, he's aware of his incapacities, as others in the scripture proved as well. We talked about Moses last week and his excuses. Exodus 4 verse 10, Then Moses said to the Lord, O my Lord, I am not eloquent, neither before nor since you have spoken to your servant. But I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. The same, was, uh, the same can be said of Gideon in Judges 6 verse 15. God comes to him and, and Gideon says to the Lord, Oh Lord, my Lord, how can I save Israel? How can I do it? Indeed, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh. And I am the least in my father's house. The same can be said of Saul when Samuel comes to him with a message from the Lord that the Lord is choosing Saul to be the king in Israel. And Saul answers and said in 1 Samuel 9.21, Am I not a Benjamite of the smallest of the tribes of Israel and my family the least of all the families of the tribe of Benjamin? Why then do you speak like this to me? And we can take it from the Old Testament to the New Testament into the, you know, the early church and into the 20th century? 21st century? Where are we now? (laughs) But the problem is our understanding of what God is doing. And you need to start understanding the way God works. Because the Lord isn't looking for ability in people. He's not looking for ability in you. He is looking for availability. Are you making yourself available to God? You see... Jeremiah did, even though he said, well, you know, Lord, I, you know, why, why are you coming to me? I, I can't speak. I'm, I'm a youth. The Lord says, don't say that. I don't make mistakes, buddy. That's God. I don't make mistakes. I like something else that God does. He does not call the qualified he qualifies the cult. 
Please understand how God works. He doesn't call the qualified as if we're always looking around for somebody else. Well, he's better. He's, he's been around longer. He went to cemetery. I mean, seminary. He went, you know, this guy went here. This guy went to Bible college. This guy went here and there. You know, send them, Lord, instead. No, I didn't come for them. I came for you. I came for you. God doesn't call the qualified. He qualifies the called. He calls men and women to work in the power of His Holy Spirit, not in the power of their own strength and of their own intellect and wisdom. Zechariah 4, verse 6. He answered and said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor power, but by my spirit. Not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. Not by might, your might, my might. Not by power, whatever power we may have, but by God's spirit. That's how he works. And so it is God's reply to Jeremiah's human misgivings. And ours too, for that matter. It is God's reply to Jeremiah's human misgivings and ours where we continue in our study now of this chapter. And so we look at verses 7 and 8. And notice what God says to Jeremiah. The Lord said to me, Do not say I am a youth. Now I would think that the Lord would have a nice, peaceful tone when he says that to him. Don't say that, Jeremiah. Now some of us would probably say, Don't say that, man. He wants to get Jeremiah's attention. But understand why he tells him not to say this. Well, we're going to see it in a moment. Do not say, I am a youth, for you shall go to all to whom I send you, and whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of their faces. Wow, that's an interesting statement. Do not be afraid of their faces. We all make faces, you know. Don't be afraid of their faces. For I am with you to deliver you, says the Lord. One thing to note, and listen carefully to this. God didn't deny what Jeremiah had said about himself. God didn't deny what he said. He just told him, don't say that. Didn't deny it, just told him not to say it. What's important about that? Well, what the Lord did was bring the prophet to the real point of the matter. In other words, he's telling him, you're asking the wrong question. Or you're giving me the wrong response. The appropriate question was not, who am I to do this? You see, this is something that we need to you know, pay attention to. The, quest, the appropriate question wasn't, who am I to do this? Lord, I can't do it. I'm, I'm just a youth. The, important, the, the appropriate question was not, who am I to do this? But, well, okay, what are my instructions? Where am I to be posted? Where am I to go? What am I to say? And will you be with me? Will you be with me? His reply to Jeremiah put the whole issue on the right footing, you see. And he related it to the true focal point. The focal point of everything was not Jeremiah. The focal point was God Himself. The focal point was the Master, not the servant. The focal point was the master. Go back to what he says there in verse 7. The Lord said to me, don't say I'm a youth, for you shall go to all to whom I send you. God is saying, first of all, you're going to go where I send you. Who's in charge? The master, not the servant. You're going to go where I send you. Then he says, whatever I command you, you shall speak. You're going to say what I tell you to say. Not Not what you want to say. It isn't the servant that's the focal point. It's the master and his words. And if you want the reassurance that I'm going to be with you, then understand this. Don't be afraid of their faces. They could be ugly as sin. Don't be afraid of their faces. For I'm with you to deliver you. 
Their faces could be full of wickedness, but I'm here to deliver you. So understand then that the focal point has to be that it is God, the one who is perfect, the one who doesn't make mistakes, sending us who think that we all have mistakes to have to deal with before God will ever send us. Our questions are usually about us, aren't, aren't they? When we, when we sense that the Lord is calling us or, or getting us to go out and do something, you know, our questions to the Lord usually kind of center around us. I mean, what's in it for me, Lord? <laughs> that's that's a, <laughs> really a poor question to ask the Lord. Here's another poor question to ask the Lord. Why me? How will I benefit by serving you? That's, that's an even worse question to ask the Lord. <laughs> I mean, you've already been benefited by the very fact that he saved you from, from hell. <laughs> That's a pretty good benefit, I think. Which means that if he saved you from hell, you ought to do everything he tells you to do. And not ask him questions. So the Lord added great words of promise. He says, don't be afraid of their faces, for I'm with you to deliver you, says the Lord. And the Lord repeats His promise at the very end of the call that He gives Jeremiah in verse 19. We'll see it later, but we'll see it now. They'll fight against you, but they shall not prevail against you, for I am with you, says the Lord, to deliver you. So it's a double promise. And any time the Lord promises something twice, you know he's going, to, he's going to come through. Even if He only promised it one time, He's going to come through. Why? Because God always keeps His promises. He is the true promise keeper. There used to be men's meetings years ago. I guess they still hang around these days, promise keepers. Let me tell you what, there's only one true promise keeper, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's something that we ought to realize all the time, that God says, I'm going to be with you always, I'm going to be there to help you. I'm going to be there to deliver you. Hebrews chapter 13, New Testament. Hebrews 13, verses 5 and 6. Let your conduct be without covetousness. Don't be coveting what other people have, but be content with such things that you have. For he himself has said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. I tell you what, if you, if you put that statement together in your mind and concentrate on it and, and consider it and meditate upon it, you know what God's saying to us? He says, don't be coveting what everybody has. You all have me. If you have me, you have everything you need. Isn't that a marvelous statement? Don't be coveting what other people have, because if you have me, you have everything. Be content with, what's, with such things that you have. For he himself has said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. So we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? What can man do if God says, I'm going to be with you and I'll deliver you and I'll strengthen you and I'll help you? No matter where you go, no matter what you're called to do. Well, we have to worry as to whether we're being persecuted. Church is being persecuted anyway. Are we going to have to worry if we get into, a, into a, some kind of a, a situation that might be fatal? Where are you going to be if you die? If you die in the Lord, if you die with the Lord, you're going to be with the Lord. What's better than that? I'm not encouraging you all to go out and do that, okay? But just understand, it's the issue of obeying God to know that you have everything you need in Him. And He says, I'll be with you. Was He not with the apostles? Every apostle suffered martyrdom. Was He not with the apostles? What does the Lord do next with Jeremiah? The next thing that the Lord does is to touch His mouth. He touches His mouth. Look at verse 9. Then the Lord put, his, put forth His hand and touched my mouth. And the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. Now, one thing that we remember in Isaiah's call, when Isaiah the prophet was called, if we go all the way back to Isaiah chapter 6, one thing we remember in Isaiah's call was what an angel did in placing a hot coal from the altar on Isaiah's lips. And if you read Isaiah 6, verses 5 through 7, Isaiah is speaking and he says, Woe is me. Here, in response to what he sees in his vision of God 
being high and lifted up. And the train of his robe is filling the temple with all of his majesty and glory. And by seeing this holy, awesome God, he recognizes the very fact that he, who thought he was a pretty good guy, actually is not so good. Woe is me, he says. Just let the worst judgment come upon me, for I am undone. I am disintegrated into a billion pieces because I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of, 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 of uh, people with unclean lips or I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand the live coal which he had taken with the tongues from the altar and he touched my mouth with it. And he said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away and your sin is purged. Now, what you need to understand after all of this is that God will say, Who is going to go for me? And Isaiah says, Here am I. Send me. God has touched his lips purified his lips so that he would speak words the words of God so this was done to purify Isaiah but when God's hand touched Jeremiah's mouth it was to give him power and authority those words would be effective to accomplish God's will listen again God touches his mouth and the Lord says, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. Now please, if you have your Bible, underline the word, my. Because I think some people take credit for the things that God says when we're to give him credit for everything he says. Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. You see, those words are going to be effective. Why? Because they're God's words given by God to the very mouth of the prophet to accomplish whose will? Jeremiah's will or God's will? It's God's will. Now, it certainly would be Jeremiah's will to do God's will. But it is God's will. Read Psalm 33, verse 6. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. How important is the word of God? How important is God's word to say that when the word of the Lord is given, the the heavens are made and all the host of them by the breath of His mouth? If you go down to verse 9 of the same psalm, it says, For He spoke and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. That is power, isn't it? That is power and that's authority when God's word goes forth. Now the prophet who said... Lord, who am I? I, I, you know, I'm, I can't speak. I'm, I'm just a youth. The Lord says, don't say that. Let me show you why you can't say that. Because I'm giving you my word. And you're going to speak it. Even in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, when we read about God in, in, in all of His glory, it says, who being the brightness of His glory and the express image of His person and upholding all things by the word of His power. Do you see that phrase? Upholding all things by the word of His power. When he, had made, when he had by Himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, speaking of the glory and majesty of Jesus Christ, who is one with God the Father. We read in Isaiah 55, verses 10 and 11, For as the rain comes down and the snow from heaven, and do not return there, but water the earth, and make it bring forth and bud, that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please, and it shall prosper in the thing for which I send it. So with that thought in mind, giving Jeremiah his word, putting it right on his lips, saying, you have my word in your mouth but it's my word and you're my messenger and you're my prophet and you're my voice go and tell this nation 
Turn back to me, or they will suffer for their rebelliousness. Go be my voice, my mouthpiece. Are we God's mouthpieces today? What, what, what are some churches doing about, about the very fact that God has commanded us to preach the word? I mean, too many churches today are focused on entertainment as the norm. Or some, some sense of, of capturing your eye or capturing, you know, your senses. But God said, preach my word. Teach my word. Hallow my word. The preaching of the word of God has taken a back seat today to the dispensing of good advice, as some people have said. Or, or even conversations. We're not going to preach to you anymore. We're just going to have a conversation about God. That sickens me. This is God's holy word. And it ought to be reverenced and revered. Not, you know, having people say today, well, you know, how, how can anybody, you know, it's so arrogant of these of these preachers to say, you know, they're preaching God's Word. I mean, I can't understand it. Well, you know what? If you get on your knees, maybe you ought to start trying to understand it because God says you can understand it if you let me speak to your heart. So what are these preachers, quote-unquote, doing? What are these conversationalists doing with God's Word? Whatever happened to Paul's admonition to Timothy? Paul, who was just about ready to get, you know, just get his head chopped off. Paul was just about at that point in time ready to enter into glory for the sake of Christ. And he writes to his son in the faith, Timothy, and he says, go give a conversation about God. and Talk a little bit about you know, how nice it is to be nice to the nice. Paul says, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and teaching. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. Welcome to that time. But according to their own desires, there it is. There's the answer right there. Doesn't matter that they just want to, you know, uh, uh, want to have to change with the times, change with the postmodern minds and be like the world is, because we have to kind of let them know that, you know. Somebody cares for him. According to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers. And they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. But you, you, Timothy, you be watchful in all things. Endure afflictions. They're going to come. Do the work of an evangelist. In other words, tell people the good news about Jesus Christ. And fulfill your ministry. Fulfill your ministry. Fulfill your calling to rescue the perishing from eternal damnation. Preach the word. Jeremiah, I have put my word in your mouth. Preach my word. As we come to verse 10, we arrive at the cement 
that binds the whole of the book of Jeremiah together. This one verse. God says to Jeremiah, See, I have this day set you over the nations and over the kingdoms to root out and to pull down, to destroy and to throw down, to build and to plant. Four words of destruction, two words of construction. The first thing to consider here is that as an individual, Jeremiah had little authority. But as a representative of God, he spoke with total authority. In and of himself, he had no authority. But as a representative of God, he spoke with total authority. As a judge speaks with the voice of the law, Jeremiah spoke with the voice of God, who, as we've already seen, carries out what he says. But it is also here that we clearly observe the difficulty of Jeremiah's ministry. Because now Jeremiah has to tear down before he can build. Jeremiah has to uproot before he can plant. And so God's purpose in Jeremiah's ministry was both destructive and constructive. It contained elements of both judgment and restoration. That is a tremendously difficult ministry. But, but, but don't consider that having, having to tear up or to tear down and to root up because it's doubly mentioned over just building and planting as being the greater work. But it all is equal. But, but just think of this fact for, for this moment. We doubly have to destruct because of what man has done with what God has given to construct. So there's a lot of tearing down and a lot of uprooting just so that we can do what God says in building and in planting. But the important thing is that when we build and plant and when Jeremiah goes forth to build and plant, it is with God's mercy. In other words, it is not judgment without mercy. It is not restoration without God's grace. Jeremiah 30 verse 11 says, For I am with you, says the Lord, to save you. Though, though I make a full end of all nations where I have scattered you, yet I will not make a complete end of you. But I will correct you in justice and will not let you go altogether unpunished. Again, these are those hints, major hints, but they're hints of God's love for His people and He's not going to let them go. He is going to deal with those who have dealt with them those that God has raised up actually to, to bring judgment upon His own people, but He will judge them for the harshness as to how they judged them and all. But He says, but I will not make a complete end of you. Jeremiah 31 verse 10 says, Hear the word of the Lord, O nations, and declare it in the isles afar off, and say, He who scattered Israel will gather him and keep him as a shepherd does his flock. So God is especially interested in keeping His promise of, restoring, of restoring His people. And though the hand of affliction will one day be heavy upon the nations, and remember what it said about Jeremiah being set over the nations and over the kingdoms. Not just Judah, not just Israel, but over all the nations in His preaching because the nations that were judging God's people were going to be judged for the way they judged God's people. And Jeremiah was the prophet for all of this. So the hand of affliction will one day be heavy upon the nations, yet the time would come, as the prophet Isaiah and Habakkuk declared, the time would come, as in Isaiah 11, verse 9, they shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord. There would be a day when God would truly build and would truly plant. And it says, the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Habakkuk 2.14 uh, 2 says the same thing. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the water or the waters cover the sea. So you have to see, you know, God's way of doing things is tearing down to build up. Pulling out to plant again. 
The very reason for God's purpose in Jeremiah's ministry is actually described by the Lord in chapter 2. So if you'll go over to chapter 2, one verse, verse 13. Here's the very purpose for, for Jeremiah's call and for God being in Jeremiah's ministry. Jeremiah 2.13 For my people have committed two evils. Take note of these. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewn themselves cisterns. Broken cisterns that can hold no water. Listen carefully to what, what these two evils are that God says of His people. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. Now water and cistern go together here. A cistern is what holds water and keeps it fresh for everyone to use for clean water. But it says they have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and they've hewn for themselves cisterns. They've made their own cisterns, but those cisterns don't hold any water. So the first sin is one of omission. The second sin is of commission or commission. One is omission. First of all, that people have forsaken the fountain of living water, which is their own God. They had ceased entrusting their God. But the second sin was that they relied upon alliances with other nations for their security. And they began to trust in their own genius, in their own intellect. So they built their own cisterns. They carved them out. They hewn them out. But anytime you put water in it, it wouldn't hold it. When God gives us a cistern to hold Him, we'll be able to hold it. We'll be able to carry all that God gives of us. But once we try to devise a way to have other things, you know, go beyond God's wisdom, go beyond God's will. It, it astounds me when people come for, you know, uh, people come for counseling or they want idea, you know, I, I just need God's help. Okay, well, here's God's word. This is what to do. And they go off and do something else. Well, what can we do? And they go on and they never solve their problem because they're not listening to what God is saying to them. You come to us, we're going to tell you what the Word of God says, and we're going to tell you, you need to do what God says. But then you say, well, I like that, but I don't like it that much. I'd rather do something a little different, because it might do something... Well, then you're, out, you're trying to outthink God. Quit trying to outthink God, and start letting Him do the Word. Get God's wisdom, and start understanding it, and believing it, and standing upon it, and then see what God can do. But I think that so many people are in miserable situations and miserable conditions because they refuse to do what God tells them. God who is the fountain of living water. So if you want to go drink from dirty cisterns, you know, I mean, okay, but I mean, we're going to tell you where the good water is. So it's important to remember that Judah, Judah itself, now listen carefully, Judah was in the midst at this time Jeremiah and Josiah. Judah was in the very midst of a national reform under Josiah when the Lord came to Jeremiah. It was a time of national reform. And in spite of the fact that Josiah was a good king who had come to the throne in a time of great corruption and depravity, in spite of the fact that he had ordered idols destroyed and the temple restored, and even though the book of the law had been discovered and the celebration of feasts were ordered to be kept... Folks, it all ended up being a surface reform because the people were just following a proper, uh, I should say, a, a popular king. It was now the end thing to go to the temple. Oh, let's all go to temple. But the people were there only in body but not in heart. The people were there in body but not in heart. I wonder if repentance preceded reform. I don't have to wonder very long. Not only by their actions or their inactions, but also by the actions of God upon them in judgment. Folks, repentance needs to precede change. And I'm not going to say reform. And I'll tell you why. Because reform is not enough. Reform is not enough. You see, after Josiah's death, the people returned to their wickedness. As soon as Josiah died, boom, they were back at their wickedness. When you read Jeremiah for the first time, 
And I hope that you read ahead and read as much of it as you can. I'm going to come back and read some more as we're going through this study. But when you read Jeremiah for the first time, you will probably be overwhelmed by the horror of a society falling to ruin. But isn't that the way we, what we see today in our own day and time? Isn't that what we see in our own nation? Look at the moral depravity of our nation today. And I tell you what, we better start praying for our nation. Because we have an election coming up in November. And right now, I mean to tell you, there is no clarity. There is no moral clarity. There is no spiritual clarity. I don't care what they say. I don't care what these guys are saying. Folks, listen carefully to what I'm saying. We better be discerning. We better be praying. Because where is this nation going to be in the next four years? Where is it going to be in the next two years? And you know, people can say they can go to this church, they can go to that church, but I tell you what, going into a church doesn't make you a Christian any more than going into your garage makes you a car. You listen carefully. There's still millions of people, there's still millions of babies dying because of abortion. And who's standing up with a clarion call against that? The situation with, with marriages today and, and wanting to overturn what, what is called a proper marriage, which is, of course, between a man and a woman. And all of that is now being challenged all across the nation. People challenging the very, the very fact that um, if we mention the word God in some schools or in some government places, that should be banned. In a country where we have a First Amendment right of freedom of speech and religion, what is happening to our nation? We better be awake and aware in the next few months. In this one verse, verse 13, I should say verse 10, sorry, in, verse, in chapter 1. Verse 13 of chapter 2 is just giving us the you know, the whole picture here. But in this one verse, in verse, four, uh, verse uh, 10 of chapter 1, with its four powerful words of destruction, we're prepared for bitter chapters to follow. But, but it makes clear that God's purpose in all that He does is to build and to plant. Jeremiah's task, as it is our task in our generation and time, was to do this. It was to root out. What does it mean to root out? It means to pluck up by the roots. It was to pull down. What does it mean to pull down? It means to demolish. What, he uses the word destroy. What does that mean? Literally means to leave to die. Lastly, thrown down. What does that mean? Literally grind to powder. That is what God said to Jeremiah is your calling. It is your ministry. Pluck up by the roots, demolish, leave to die, and grind to powder. After all this is done, now you can build and you can plant. If God sees a tree bearing bad fruit, listen, if God sees a tree bearing bad fruit, His method is not to cultivate it and try His best to work with it to produce good fruit. You see, that's the problem with reform. People are conscious of evil fruit, they hate the evil fruit, but then they try to transplant it or change its environment. Or they try to fertilize it and discover that they're succeeding in getting bigger rotten fruit. That's what reform is. What did Jesus say? What is God's real method? Matthew 15, verse 13, He answered and He said, Every plant which my Heavenly Father has not planted will be uprooted. Pure and simple. Every plant which my Heavenly Father has not planted will be uprooted. Not reformed. What the Lord does do, what He does do is, is to pluck it up and destroy it. In essence, it is, bringing to, it is bringing it to the cross. 
Whatever it is. Why, why the cross? Because at the cross, that's where things have to die. Even in our own personal life, think about this. It is putting it to death. Even in our own personal life, we have to be brought to nothing as far as our flesh is concerned, and rightly so. The flesh struggles hard to be in charge. Well, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. What does it mean by the flesh is weak? It means it's strong. It's weak to the things of this world. Spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak to the things of this world. And when we turn to the things of this world, it becomes strong. And what are we called to do? We're called to bring it to the cross. Crucifixion is a painful thing, isn't it? And we want to say to Jesus, well, actually we want to say with Jesus, as Jesus, we, we look at what Jesus did in the, in the garden of, of Gethsemane, and, and we hear his words, if, it, it's, if it's possible, Lord, let this cup pass from me. We want to say that with Jesus, Lord, if it's possible, let it pass from me. Let crucifixion, crucifixion pass from me. But what did Jesus tell us? He says, you need to pick up your cross and follow me. You need to pick up your cross, which speaks of your death, to be alive in Christ. It is when we are brought to nothing that the Lord begins to work. It is when we have been pulled up, uprooted, thrown down. What? That God begins to build. And God begins to plant. And to build in our lives. And to work in our lives. Folks, it is not the end. It is the beginning. When did your Christian life start? When you were dead and Christ was alive in you. It is not the end. It is the beginning. I want to close with these words from the Apostle Paul in Romans 6. Verses 4 through 14. Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death. Notice the terminology here. We were buried with Him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of His death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of His resurrection, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with Him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin. Sin no longer is that which binds you. If you are indeed dead to sin, you're alive in Christ. For he who has died has been freed from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in its lusts, and do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God, for sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Now that's a mouthful. But I would go back tonight and tomorrow and the next day and the next night and the next evening and read this over and over and realize what God is saying to you and to me. We don't begin to live until we die. And the nation of Judah And more generally speaking, the nation of Israel would not live until it was first really dead. So, think about 
the fact that one day, actually some of that has already come to pass. The book of Ezekiel talks about the valley of dry bones. That that valley of dry bones, which was really kind of a big cemetery of bones, all of a sudden would come to life and the bones would all stand up and then all of a sudden life would come back and then the sinews and muscles and, and skin would all come back and there would be life again. It's happened to Israel. Where was Israel for nearly 2,000 years? And now there's a people and there's a land because God always promised it. So it will once again. And there's still a lot to go with Israel but in a very short time. A time frame of prophetic issues. But looking at all of that, what does that say to us about our death and our life? You see, people today without Christ, they, they have a life and at some point they're going to die. But people who are in Jesus Christ, though we will live and die in the flesh, when we came to know Jesus Christ, we died so that we can live forever spiritually and eternally with a new body with everything new will be raised from the dead as Jesus was raised and will have life everlasting that's something to live for isn't it that's also something to tell others about and it's something for us to live righteously so that the world can see the beauty of Christ in us. Let's pray.